0: Hey, Richard Gottlieb, how you doing? I'm doing great, even though it's snowing outside. I know, but we've got a treat for our listeners today. We've got the second of our conversations with curators from the Strong Museum of Play in Rochester, New York, and we think you're going to be really intrigued by some of the backstories and information about the collection that they're going to share with you. And now we're joined by Nicholas Ricketts, who is another curator here at the Strong Museum. He focuses a lot on games, and today, November 4th, when we're recording, we just saw Risk inducted into the Toy Hall of Fame. But Nicholas, you've got a great story about the original Monopoly board, which is on display here, and it's round. What's up with this?
1: (laughs) It's round. Uh, It belonged to Charles Darrow, who was the man who first marketed monopoly in about 1934 our game we think comes from 1933 you see Charles Darrell was taught the game a folk version had sort of been circulating and he loved it and he was an out-of-work sort of plumber during the Great Depression and he was looking for a get rich quick scheme and he said I can market this game because it's really fun uh but uh, so the family one, and maybe there was more than one, but there isn't now. The legend is he made it round to fit his dining room table.
0: Okay.
2: And it looks, Nick, it looks like it was hand drawn.
1: Yeah, most of it was. I think parts of it were printed. By the time he made it, he was friends with this wannabe commercial artist, and that was the man who designed the sort of railroad symbols, because mm-hmm. you can even see them on that board. They're yes. cruder, but I think they may have been printed, and perhaps the black lines were printed, or inked at least is what we say.
2: And Nick, I look pretty closely and every single one of the properties it looks like the ones that are on the, the modern board game. Uh, there wasn't a change I could see, so that was must have been the final prototype, maybe?
1: Well, it depends on how you define prototype, yes. But the first games he made after that were also printed and painted on oilcloth, like tablecloth material, and then the boards were rolled up. He only apparently made a few of those, but those were the first games that he started marketing. He sold them to Wanamaker's department store in Philadelphia, <laughs> and that's where, that's where Monopoly really started.
2: So, Nicholas, how did the museum come to acquire this very rare original Monopoly board.
1: Well, the game d- descended in Darrow's family. I don't think they played it much because it was easier to play a more modern foldable version with a smaller board. It So it descended in his family and uh, I don't know what happened to it right after that, but it ended up in the collection of Malcolm Forbes in New York City. Uh, Forbes was a millionaire, entrepreneur guy and he... At his own museum. Forbes magazine, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Publisher. Yeah. And and I think his children still do that. But he also was a collector of oh, I would call them capitalist games like Monopoly. <laughs> 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 and maybe colonial games like Toy Soldiers, but big massive metal ones in huge groups of them. Is sort of fitting, I think, for for what he was. He displayed this Monopoly at his museum, and that is the first place I saw it. He had several other Monopolies, also.
2: And when you saw it, did you did you want it
0: <laughs> for the museum, Richard?
1: <laughs> I was working here then, and indeed I did. I thought, well, this will probably never come up for sale. Um, and uh, he, uh, you know, he eventually passed away, and his children didn't want most of the playthings that he had displayed on the first floor there. And uh, so it was going up for sale at Sotheby's in New York. You went to the auction? I did. I, did. I attended it. Did you throw your hand in the air? And- uh, I had a oh, paddle. paddle right? I had a paddle,
0: yeah. Okay. was <laughs> <laughs> shaking in my boots. How exciting, but, yeah. especially with someone else's money. Yes. <laughs> <indeed>.
2: <laughs> so uh, how did it go in the auction?
1: It went great, although I'd been pre-approved to spend a certain amount by our board, the museum's board. And I have to say, I went over that amount just a little bit. So I was really nervous. I knew it wouldn't go any higher. Somehow I knew that. I don't know how I knew. but So I was nervous, so, uh, and it was the middle of winter. In those days, if you got on the subway to go back to your hotel or to go to the airport to fly home, you lost your cell phone Uh, coverage so I wanted to speak to my boss back here and eventually I spoke to our CEO at the time just to be reassured and everyone was like oh it's fine it's fine Um, I'm sure the collections committee will be glad that we got this thing and indeed it's become one of our treasures here so
2: without naming names were you up against an institution or a person
1: you know I don't know uh I think the main bids that I was up against were phone-in bids, so it was just, mm-hmm. you know, Sotheby's employees there with on the phone nodding and
0: And you didn't say, "But this is for the Strong Museum of Play. You got guys, 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 stand down. <laughs> I bet. do the I bet. do the right thing, right, man." Right, right.
1: <laughs> nope, I didn't have a chance to say that.
0: So today, you guys inducted Risk into the Toy Hall of Fame, and quite an amazing game. I remember playing it with my brothers when I was a kid and the Games would go on forever. What was it about Risk that rose to the top with the 55,000 other nominations that came up this year?
1: Well, Risk meets all the criteria for the Toy Hall of Fame, and it has been uh, nominated before but has never made it. It's been on the list of 12 finalists before. Risk was innovative, too, for its time. Even though there were other war games that came before it, there were none quite as detailed as it or that reached such a mass audience. So that's what's pretty important about it. But the thing I love most about Risk is the stories, because everybody seems to have a story about it day-long or two-day-long Risk game, and everybody was mad at each other. <laughs> but they had a great time. It's uh, one of the games that brings out that competitive spirit that I think is so good for people when they are gaming. Risk is truly a game that that did that. Uh, we got a, had a great story from the um, veterans of the Gulf War. In fact, it's on exhibit in the case, who uh, played it while they were over overseas in service, they found a risk game and they played it and played it and played it and loved it, and it, they sort of bonded over it. And now they have a reunion every year and they get together and play risk.
2: Do, do you have a copy of
1: Scrabble or re- an old Scrabble game here? We've got pretty old ones. We I don't think we have one from its well first year of publication. We do have a prototype though. He did his first versions as blueprints, and we have one of those. Wow. Wow. And s- sold a few of them. No, it's not. It's pretty delicate. And we only have room to s- display so much right now. But it's pretty great. Yeah, we Any game that's in the Toy Hall of Fame, we try to get prototypes if we can, um, early drawings if we can, anything like that that, that might um, exist.
0: I remember our Risk set came in a blue box. And it had clear plastic boxes. The, the pieces were wood, actually. And we 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 uh we ended up in fights i mean physical fights with my brothers like brawling in the living room over the risk game
1: there are many stories of yeah. um people upsetting the game board and before the game is over that they're they're so angry but i mean in family you can do anything like yeah. that.
2: <laughs> Nicholas, um are are there any games here that for you uh, are particularly uh, fascinating
1: well, yes, um, we have a night, it's about, it's not really dated, but it's about 1950, a Jackie Robinson baseball game. And I think Jackie designed it. It's a mechanical game where there's, you know, a, a sort of metal bat that hits a, a some kind of a, a disc, I think it's a magnet. And so it has a copyright, but it's undated on the game, but it's got a, a picture of Jackie. And the amazing thing about it, too, is that, I'm sure he had complete control over what the game box cover would look like, and so there's a a little white boy and a little black boy, and another boy that I think might possibly be supposed to be an Asian boy, and they're all playing the game and having a great time. And for 1950, that is really unusual, I think.
2: Do you know the uh, the name of the publisher?
1: I think it was made, though, by one of the New York City metal game makers, such as Tudor Games. Uh, There was another one whose name I don't recall, but it, it could have been Tudor. So we
2: got war games. We have sports games. What other genre of games
0: are there?
1: Well, there's lots. First, There's a famous game for very, very young children with a pretty interesting backstory, and that would be Candyland, which first appeared... Uh, In 1949, a woman named Eleanor Abbott, who was stricken with polio, which seems a little bit timely right now, considered we have another pandemic circulating, Uh, she had polio and was recovering what they called a polio ward, but most of the other people there were children because children were most affected by polio and sometimes very badly affected by it. So Eleanor wanted to devise a game. She was a teacher, um, that was her profession. She wanted to devise a game to keep the kids busy in the ward, but also a game that children could play indoors because they thought that, um, they didn't realize how polio was passed from person to person. They thought that it was from being outside too much or maybe swimming in a public pool, things like that. They didn't really know. So. She imagined a game that did not involve any counting or any reading, and that's why the youngest children, all you need to know is your colors. You can play Candyland. I know parents hate it, but...
0: (laughs) They don't really hate it. It's just they, they don't like to play because they can win. And then the child's upset. <laughs> they, have, they have to.
1: They have to pretend they're not winning,
0: though. Right. I don't know if this is an apocryphal story or not, but I, when I was researching a book, oh my gosh, about twenty some years ago, I was told that her original concept had been about nourishing food and vegetables, and that ultimately they decided that candy would be more fun for kids.
1: That could be. I've never heard that story, but it very well could be. It sounds like something a teacher would come up with. Yeah. Yeah.
0: One of the big icons of the game industry is Marvin Glass. He he really revolutionized games in the in the early mid-sixties. He he brought in what we call now the skill in action game that's recently had a revival in the past few years. Talk a little bit about the significance of what he did, especially for the baby boomer generation.
1: Well, from what I've read, Glass himself was really more of a marketer than, than an inventor. He hired people to do the sort of inventing for him. But he also took advantage of the boom in the late 50s and early 60s of plastics. So with plastics, you could make those dexterity games like maybe one of his most famous, Mousetrap, right. um, that was all plastic. Uh uh, and in, in very bright colors, too. It's funny, because if you look at all of, almost all of those games from the 1960s, they use the same sort of primary colors. The next decade, the colors change, And then in the 80s, there's a lot of pink and light blue and gray, and it's, it's weird. You can tell the decade by just the colors of the plastic. Sure.
0: I want to go back to something you said about Monopoly. You said he sold it at Wanamaker's first, which was a department store. And fast forward to the early 1980s, Rob Angel with Pictionary sold it at Nordstrom's. He could not get anybody to look at his game. So what is it about that kind of... Spirit or entrepreneurial stuff or belief that really drives a game into the consciousness of, of the culture
1: I wonder if it's something that may there may be less of today. It might be just really savvy buyers for those uh, Department stores because they were so competitive. I, I, I Know that Charles Darrow took his game to Parker Parker Brothers, which was run by um, the first Parker George Parker And he did not like the game. He and his team did not like it. It's way too complicated. No one will enjoy this. So meanwhile, Darrow took it to Wanamakers, and they started to sell a little bit. Well, George Parker's wife was at a party and played the game because it was really starting to catch on. And she came home and said, you have to get this game, and you have to sell it. So supposedly that's what happened.
2: But you know, it strikes me that you know we look back at decisions. And you go, what's wrong with Parker? Not realizing what a great game this was, but really based on everything that had come before and what was common wisdom, he made a solid business decision in turning down the game. And I wonder how many times, even not even today, but today we we have yet to adjust our brains. To novelty and, and new ways of doing things, and it's not the way it was done before.
0: Jim Pressman told us that Gooey Louie, the game about you know picking the nose, till his brain pops out, was rejected by every single toy manufacturer till he said, "Yeah, that's kind of weird," and and took it on. I mean, everybody, all the majors had had rejected it. Pressman at the time wasn't doing that kind of suspense game or skill and action game, and he took it on when, when nobody else would.
1: Yeah, it's amazing. Well, I have to think of it in historical terms. I mean, it's just before the Great Depression. Well, actually, no, it's 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 in the Great Depression. You, you really wouldn't think someone would want to play a, a, as a landlord and Charge other players rent. It's a bizarre idea. (laughs) And it wasn't, it really wasn't the intent of the game that Monopoly was based on. I don't know how it evolved into that kind of winner take all, you're all bankrupt and I win uh, kind of thing. But people apparently loved it, especially during the Depression. And it really helped Parker Brothers get through the Depression.
2: A lot of gameplay is about how smart are you? And are you smarter than other people around the table with you? And that underestimating people's desire to be the smartest person in the room is probably a mistake, that it's a real, it's kind of a human need to show off through your intelligence.
1: I think so. And that may be the secret to Monopoly, too, because... In the Depression, not only were you proving that you were the smartest, you were the most economically savvy during a time when that might be seen as really valuable because there was just not enough of anything to go around.
2: Do you have uh, any artifacts for Trivial Pursuit here?
1: Oh, yeah, we do. Um, We have the first version. And we have a lot of the versions that came afterwards, the 90s version, the Saturday Night Live version. We like to represent popular culture in, like that in those ways, because it is so much uh, reflected in games and playthings.
0: I'm gonna ask you the question we asked Michelle, which is, is there a game out there that you would love to get? Is there a holy grail for for the collection? Or have you been able to get, I mean, the Monopoly board would be one that you actually got, but are there others out there that you're trying to find?
1: Not as many as there once was. For a long time, I wanted a copy of the Landlord's Game, the game that Monopoly was based on. And it was first published by Elizabeth Maggie, a woman in... Nineteen oh six, she had a patent in nineteen oh four for this game, that was very similar to Monopoly. You bought property, you charged rent for it. Her idea was that with by going around the board about five times, you would realize how unfair this process was. <laughs> she her she was a her father had been a nineteenth century socialist, different from socialism t- today. But they sort of believed that you shouldn't be able to own a piece of the earth. You could own what you produced on it. But the earth itself was a communal owned thing.
0: Now, you've got something coming up that we've heard inklings of, and that's I think is going to be huge, which is TV game shows and board games based on TV game shows. Can you talk a little bit about that project that's, that you got you guys have recently initiated?
1: It's not just board games, it's material from TV game shows and it has started to come in. The, uh, there are people, mostly in Hollywood, but kind of all over the place, who had worked on these and collected a lot of material. So we've already gotten hundreds of tickets for You Bet Your Life, uh, things like that. Just paper documents that are part of the history of these programs. But also, they almost, for nearly every game show, they would make a board game, for some reason, a board game version of it. And yes, those are also coming in, too. It's really great to see them.
0: Any any surprises in things that you've gotten so far? Any any uh, somewhat obscure things? You're laughing, so I, I've obviously t- triggered something.
1: I'm not going to be able to remember the names, but yes, <laughs> it was the tickets. They were for shows that I'd never even heard of. Oh, wow! I mean... Bizarre things, you know, uh, I, I, I can't remember. It's of, some, yeah, that everyone's heard of, Concentration, and maybe You Bet Your Life with Groucho Marx. There were others, countless others that, it's uh, uh, names of shows you'd never heard.
0: So Nicholas, we're going to ask you our, our new question that we're going to start asking every guest on the Playground podcast. Tell us what your favorite play experience was as a child.
1: Well, uh, I can tell you, I think, it might have been—we were on vacation, which is always my favorite time as a child. Um, we went on, a, on a, a big family vacation, and we rented a cottage. But this time, a lot of our extended family came with us, and these were cousins that I didn't get to spend a lot of time with. Well, it rained. rained a couple of days in a row, and there was a big recreation building there, and they had a Monopoly game. And we played a game that lasted all day and into the night. And that was really fun. I like card games of all kinds, first of all. Um, And cribbage is maybe my favorite card game. Oh, you're a
2: cribbage guy. Mm -hmm.
1: eh? I'm good at it, too. (laughs) And we grew up playing a lot of card games.
2: Oh, you're a cribbage guy. eh? I was remembering when I was a kid, Canasta had become very popular Uh, cribbage seemed to come and go. A lot of these things do. What is the state of cribbage today?
1: Well, from what I understand, it'll always be kept alive because in the Navy on submarines, there's always a cribbage board. Really? Always, always, yep.
0: My parents insisted that my brothers and I learn to play bridge because it was essential for our social life in college. So you can tell when my parents went to college versus when I went to college. Uh, I only play bridge these days with the kids in the other families who learned to play bridge at the same time.
1: And you know, it's amazing to me because bridge was so popular from like the 1930s to the 1960s. say, eh? And even beyond that, I always knew people that, had, that played bridge, adults when I was growing up. Right. Uh, but it came out of the 30s, just like Monopoly and... Just like uh, Jigsaw Puzzles had a huge popularity in the 1930s. I think the Great Depression did a lot for gaming, if you could think of it that way.
2: I'm thinking that Landlord's Game was like 1904, 1906, and I believe there was a big recession in 1898 or something. They didn't used to call it a recession or a depression. They used to call it a panic. And so I wonder if her inspiration was very similar to Dara's.
1: Late 19th century was a bad time. And her father was one of the bigwigs in this group that thought there's got to be a better way than this capitalism. Now bear in mind, this is before income tax because that was like 1913. Right, right. Yeah. So if you were rich, you were rich. But if you were poor, you stayed pretty poor. So I think that had something to do with with that, But, again, her idea that a game could teach you this sort of bizarre uh, kind of principle is fascinating to me, this, that a game would teach. I mean, games, of course, do teach us a lot of things, but that's a pretty complicated thing for a game to teach.
0: Well, before we let you go, I have two other games I want to ask you about. One, because we were talking about game crazes, and the end of the 19th century into the 20th century, Parcheesi was a huge was a huge craze, the royal game of India, <laughs> as, it, as it came over. Uh, talk about that. And I also want to, I don't know if it's really a board game, but the Ouija board, I mean, obviously it has been a huge part of culture in the 20s with the spiritualism and all of that. It became really huge. But talk about those two things as representative of their culture at the time.
1: Well, part of the reason for Parcheesi is that it's an Indian game originally, and India, for a long time, was a colony of England. And so there's a bit of colonialism there because, uh, you know, Indian, for example, Indian food came to England way before it, it came here. Right. Same with Parcheesi. In India, it's something of a folk game, Pachesi and played on cloth boards, but basically the same way. In, in, in England, it was called Ludo. I'm not sure why. When it came to America, I think Parcheesi was sort of an Americanization of Parcheesi, and it came earlier than people think because there are folk art Parcheesi boards that predate um, the main company that brought Parcheesi here, which was Selchow and Ryder in New York City, Um, and they thought that they could trademark the name Parcheesi. They couldn't, so uh, a lot of the other uh, game companies like Milton Bradley and like Parker Brothers made the game but called it the Game of India or uh, the, the Royal Game of India um, and it's still it's exact, exactly the same game. Beautiful game board,
0: right? Some of the old ones are just stunning from the, from the beginning of the twentieth century. Just early lithograph. We were talking earlier about lithography, early early lithography. Uh,
1: why it caught on like it did? I don't know. It's not difficult to play, right. but there is a bit of strategy involved. So I think it's what we'd call a, a pretty good game, like a lot of folk games can be.
2: And by the way, as far as Ouija boards are concerned, it's really creepy. <laughs> I mean, I don't get it. I'm, I'm sure maybe somebody has done a study of what goes on. but
1: They have. Um, what they find. Well, there were what are called spirit boards before Ouija boards, first of all. The Ouija board was sort of an invention of a gentleman, I believe, in New England where a lot of this stuff sort of seems to fester. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it's cold there in the winter, <laughs> yeah. and it's dark. That's you gotta it. do
0: something. <laughs>
1: That's it. But he uh, sort of like Darrow tried to um, mass market this thing, which apparently is more of a board game than than we think. They have done studies. Supposedly, it has something to do with you're wanting it to say what it says, or you're not wanting it to say what it says. And there's a with two people. Calling it the thing and i don't know i don't think there's anything really mystical about it is the conclusion but it's nice to think that there is
0: and you have them here in the collection oh we do yeah
1: we do we don't have a really early spirit board or a really early ouija branded board we did borrow one of those though because we wanted to put one on display
0: well nicholas ricketts thank you so much for sharing this time with us uh Games are endlessly fascinating to me and to and to a lot of people, but we really think that people should get up here and see all the games you've got and, uh, and play it a little bit. Thank you so much.
1: Absolutely. They should get up here. Um, you're very welcome. This has been a pleasure, and um, game on.
0: And now we come to the part of the show that we call the end cap, where Richard and I talk about issues that are confronting the toy industry. And this week, we're talking about the results for 2021. NPD came out with a release that said that Retail sales in toys increased by 13% in 2021. It's an indicator. Richard, what are you thinking?
2: Well, I read an article this week uh, for Global Toy News, Chris, in which I did cite that increase of 13% followed by the question, and my apologies to Tina Turner, (laughs) what's inflation get to do with it? Right. And I think a lot. Um, Chris, the consumer price index, which tracks really the entire um, consumption economy, was up 7% in 2021. So if we take that 13% increase and we subtract the 7% that came from inflation, uh, we come at at about a 6% increase in 2021. And just to point out, this 7% increase is highly unusual. Typically, it runs 1%, yeah. 2%. This is very high. Then, Chris, we have surveyed Global Toy News, the industry, three times on inflation. We see toy inflation is running between 10 and 15%. So based on that, my feeling is, is the industry netted out to a low single digits increase in 2021, which of course raises the question: Is that
0: important? Right. That was I was going to ask you that. I was going to say, what is it? What does it mean to a company that's that's uh, selling product?
2: First of all, it's a little bit like uh, being on steroids. <laughs> if, you, if you count the inflation, it, it puffs you up. And you may look a little better, but you're really not, because they, the numbers that you're showing aren't as good as how you're really doing. And so I think it's a reality check, Chris, that we, we have to pay attention to. Then there's, I got a number of people who wrote me after this article went out saying that thank you for being realistic. My numbers were nowhere near 13% this year. And so I think it also gives people a baseline to really study their business and the industry's business so we can anticipate what's coming.
0: Right, and I I think with any statistics, you have to ask, well, what does it mean? What is the context? And I think every company is looking at this in terms of, well, how did I do? And any statistical study is gonna be imperfect And for this, it's largely about the PR and about being able to say that toys were robust and many toys were robust. But we see every year there are always winners and losers. So the industry overall being up 13% or 7% or 6% is not as important to a small company as how they were able to do in this changing and challenging time.
2: And I think challenging is the word and it does not appear... That inflation is going to slow down anytime soon. The Fed is talking about raising uh, interest rates in March, which could slow the economy down. Uh, that's certainly a double edged sword. So we're just going to have to wait and see, Chris, uh, how things go forward. But we've been through this before, back a few decades ago, where we saw this kind of double digit inflation driven increases with the toy industry and the and the economy in general.
0: And my question is whether or not companies no matter what the industry they're in, whether or not companies will be able to use this threat of inflation and all of the news about supply chain to raise prices and to be able to be more profitable and The interesting thing about toys, as we've discussed before, is that with so many, perhaps 60% of the items being new, consumers don't have a point of reference to say, oh, well, this is X dollars more than it was last year. They're just saying that this is costing this and my child wants it, so I'm going to buy it.
2: You're absolutely right, Chris. uh, Companies will do that. Remember, if you own inventory in an inflationary time and you can increase your prices, you are making a bigger profit on the inventory you own. And then each time you bring inventory in, if you increase prices, you continue to make an increased profit. So those you and I have both talked to, people are taking increases two and three times, they have to because the cost of inputs, particularly plastic is way up. Uh, We all know how expensive container rates are Again, I, I think we're going to continue to see prices go up.
0: I think so, too. And I, and I do think that one of the advantages of our industry, the toy industry, is that we are a bit insulated because parents will stretch themselves to get something that a child wants. They might not buy themselves another sweater or they may wait a year to replace the refrigerator if they can. But when it comes to kids and toys, there is a willingness to spend that is unlike other industries. We're just going to have to see how it shakes out. But interesting to see these numbers. I think from what I've been hearing that we're off to a strong start for 2022. And we're just going to have to see how it shakes out. But that's what we say almost every week. Well, this is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Burr, my co-host and cohort, Richard Gottlieb. We are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the toy guy and marketing and media agency, Chiscom. If you like these episodes, we hope you'll share these with your friends and colleagues, and we hope you'll tune in next time.